Galway Film Podcast. My name is Will Fitzgerald and this is the Galway Film Podcast. Just a heads up before we get started that today's episode features some strong language just in case you're listening in the vicinity of any immature ears. Today on the show, we're bringing you a panel discussion recorded live at this year's Goy Film Fla. The topic of the panel is career trajectories, and the idea is to bring together a range of working film and TV professionals beyond just directors and producers to talk about their working lives. Speakers include set decorator of Vikings, Kathy Hegarty, film and TV editor, John Murphy, Oscar-nominated animator, Nikki Phelan, director of A Mother Brings Her Son to Be Shot, which is still in cinemas, Sinead O'Shea, and screenwriter of Black 47, also still in cinemas, Pierce Ryan. The panel is chaired by lecturer at the Houston School of Film and Digital Media at NUI Galway, Con Hullihan. Because this was recorded live, the sound quality may vary, but on the scale of live recordings on podcasts I've listened to, it's pretty good. The Galway Film Podcast is produced by Grease On Demand Skillnet Training. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our future episodes. I'll be back next week with the first of a trio of horror-themed episodes as we count down to Halloween 2018. Until then, here's Con Holland. Thanks a million, everybody, uh, for coming out on this rainy Saturday morning. Uh, so this, is, this panel is on careers in film. Um, uh, my name is Con Holland. I'm a lecturer in film in NUI Galway. And um, I guess one of the, my motivations for doing this is uh, to give, like our students are often obviously thinking about careers in film and, and to, to kind of broaden the conversation one of the things we want to do is, is talk to, to people with a, with a range of different careers and different people who do different things in the, in the industry I also have another motivation which I'll, uh, I'll tell you at the end once I've softened you up um, okay so I might just first uh, get everyone on the panel to introduce themselves and say what it is they do uh, Cathy do you want to Hello, um, I work in set decoration department with Vikings at the moment actually, uh, yeah. uh, but I would have trained here in Galway as well, I went to um, the uh, GMIT. Uh, I'm uh, John Murphy, I'm a film and television uh, editor and uh, I also went to GMIT uh, many moons ago, um, yeah, work in post-production. Uh, I'm Nikki Phelan. I work in animation. Uh, I was nominated for an Oscar in 2010, which is a handy adjective for <laughs> Granny O'Grim. Um, I studied in Ballyfermot in Dublin many, many moons ago um, and work now in Dublin with Brown Bag Films. Thanks, Nikki. Um, I'm a filmmaker. Um, and my first feature documentary, A Mother Brings Her Son to Be Shot, is showing here this evening. And uh, I studied English initially and then film production. So that's my Great, record. thanks. And I'm Pierce Ryan. I'm a screenwriter. Uh, I have not been nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I won a medal for table tennis in Irish college. <laughs> At least you won Thank it. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the co-screenwriter of Black 47. That's closing film tomorrow. And have written another feature film that was out a while back on Netflix called Standby, and sort of background in short films. Also wrote for Fair City, which we can also talk about if you want. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, thanks, many guys. Um, 
so yeah, as I said, the, the kind of, I guess, the, the purpose of the panel today, and hopefully if for those of you who were at the previous panel, it might chime nicely, which was all about sort of infrastructure and training in, in uh, the Irish media, screen media industry. Uh, maybe just sort of get a sense of, you know, actually the, the career trajectories and, and uh, the working lives of people who are actually within, working in that industry. Um, so I might just start, I mean, some of you mentioned education, but I might just start off again just asking maybe to talk a little bit more about uh, where you studied, what you trained, and how maybe it did or didn't prepare you for, uh, for life in the, in the industry. I mean, Cathy, do you want to kick off on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose I knew I wanted to work in film definitely by the time I was in my leave insert, so I was very specifically aiming for a film degree. Um, so I ended up in Galway, had a brilliant course, three-year degree. I left in 2007. I would have specialised in editing and production design, kind of knowing I wanted to get into the design aspect of things. So I would have... Um, my lecture would have been Declan Sheridan here in Galway, uh, which was brilliant, obviously, but I had a brilliant time. The course was amazing, I found. Um, luckily for me and a few others, we immediately got work straight out of college in Studio Solis, so the Roger Carman studio um, out in Connemara, and got onto a kids' TV series. So it was really good that we had work immediately and were able to put something on our CV straight away. It just was pure chance, you know. And uh, most of us then have kind of continued working since then, the few of us that went on that. So, uh, yeah, and I've, I would have been art department up until two years ago when I moved into set decoration. So kind of two aspects of the design spectrum within film and TV. Um, but, yeah, um, no, I'm just lucky that I was able to get work within my department and be able to stay in it continuously yeah, yeah. in the last 10 years. Great. Uh, John, you, you trained in the same... August. Yeah, so um, I went to GMIT as well, and I was actually in the second year of the three-year course, um, and they just kind of moved into Clunwara, and uh, I think they were probably trying to figure out what the course was a little at the time, as, as we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do as well. So in some ways, it, it was great. In other ways, it was a bit of a shambles, but it kind of actually worked because um, you kind of had to figure out how to do things for yourself a little bit because... Uh, our lecturers were great but the infrastructure wasn't in place really yet so a lot of time we were kind of moving from one room to another room and uh, it was um, it was a challenge but like I said you did kind of um, you did kind of have to figure out right, if we want to make something we kind of have to be self uh, motivating in that regard so we ended up kind of doing lots of little bits ourselves and that was really good for us um, uh, as it happened when we left like I said, it was the second year, the first year that went out. They, everyone in the first year went straight into jobs in Telegale and uh, Corman was, was still something on in Corman at the time um, and a lot of those guys got work. Our year, none of us got work. Uh, there was no work. Um, and, but it's kind of, it's one of those things about those kind of courses. A lot of the time, uh, it isn't really about kind of what you learn uh, in terms of uh, how to do the work. It's actually more about the people that you meet and the kind of friendships you forge that they're the ones that will kind of, um, you know, they obviously stick with you, but you also kind of build working relationships from that as well. So a lot of us would have done stuff through that. Um, a lot of us, there's actually very few of us still working in the industry, but a lot of us are all in, we're all in kind of the creative arts and theatre or uh, journalism or advertising. Um, so it, it you know, it, it went different ways for lots of different people. Um, our, my, the editing lecture uh, 
for our third year. Uh, I was on maternity leave and they had a replacement editor in and uh, me, me and him got on very well and uh, I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to do editing but um, I always had a kind of um, a competency, a kind of technical stuff. So uh, he, when he left then he uh, kind of, um, actually he, uh, he uh, said he was going to do a short film uh, for this director and then he found out that the director had a, girl, had a boyfriend and the boyfriend was the lead actor in the short, so he didn't really want to do it anymore because he just really wanted to go out with the director. So he uh, uh, said, would you do it instead? And that was my first um, <laughs> editing job. <laughs> um, it's one of the things that we were talking about, or people were talking about the last panel, was about the idea that in the Irish film, personal relationships are often the most important thing. So we might come back to that, uh, and that's very personal. Mm. Um, uh, Nikki, uh, what about yourself? Uh, uh, I, I studied in Ballyfermot, um, which at the time, I had a headmaster who sat me down and said, please don't waste your brain and do animation. It was like, Jesus, thanks. <laughs> it's like, you might get into, uh, it was UCD he reckoned I'd get into, and he was right. He knew the CAO form, like people know racehorses, like he knew where <laughs> you were going to end up. Um, but anyway, I went, um, I said, respectfully, no, I'm going. And it was fine, it was four years. I, I did the classical course at the time they had introduced uh, computer CGI course and you know I was an arrogant child I was like computers I need to learn how to draw uh, I use computers every day now <laughs> um, but uh, it was a great course in terms of becoming a better artist but like John was saying I, I, there was a lot of um, skills in the industry that I was clueless about when I got out um, uh, like I learnt on the job probably a lot more than I learnt in the four years there but uh, some of my best friends are people I met there some of my colleagues are people I met there um, and and I and I became a much better artist because of the amount of time I was spent drawing. Like for the first time, I've been drawing in the margins of maths books and French copies and stuff, being told I was wasting my brain. And now eight hours a day, that was my gig. I was to improve. And so, even though the technical side of things was lacking due to maybe some inexperience on some of our tutors' parts in terms of where the technology was out in the industry. I was a better artist, and that stood me well, because the technology you can learn, and it changes like so quickly anyway. But, um, but when I left, uh, it was, there was very little going on in animation at the time, so we were all just deluded idiots, really going, well, it'll work for us, um, even though there's no jobs. Um, and then a company called Boulder got a contract for Cartoon Network, and word got around that they were looking for 20 artists, and so there was us in Dunleary of about 20 students each. They were like, who are the 20 who are going to get the jobs? And we all went for it. And I was all, I'll definitely get this. And I did not. <laughs> um, and they told me I was 21st. I was like, I might as well have been fucking 100th. What? what do you mean I was 21st? Um, and at the time, I was working in a clothes shop folding T-shirts. <laughs> and I got fired from that for being too miserable. <laughs> they were like, you're a bit of a buzzkill. Could you cheer up? I was like, I just wasted four years of my life. Now I can't cheer up. Um, but weirdly, like you with the guy, who, or I'm sorry, I'm projecting, whoever was in love with the lead actor <laughs> situation, um, I, uh, a tutor had agreed to make this short film for Schizophrenia Ireland. They had like a, sh a small fund to do like a kind of community film project. And then she found out she was pregnant, did her maths, and she's like, I'm going to be way too pregnant to be dealing with a bunch of schizophrenics. Do you want to do this instead? <laughs> sorry, she didn't say it. That's the way I projected. Um, so me and a girl from our class said we would do it. 
And it was through that that we ended up in brown bag because Ballyferm had said, sure, you can use our equipment. And they were like, oh, wait, no, you can't. We're not covered with insurance. And so we had this pile of drawings to output for the film for these people. So we went into brown bag and said, we, we have no money. Can we use your equipment in between your commercials? And they said, okay. And that was the foot in the door. Brilliant. Yeah, it was a very odd entry yeah. point. And it seems, you kind of get the sense that everybody has an odd kind of story of how they you know ended up where they were and there's a kind of every every, every example is idiosyncratic in some ways in the Irish uh, film media industry um, but I just want to maybe come back to the point that a couple of you raised and throw it over here about and this was again a discussion we were talking about earlier about the idea of what should education do and can education make people industry ready or set ready or you know uh, and so maybe you know Sinead <laughs> so is the question, did it make me oh, I guess ready? maybe the question is more, um, you know, how did your, what, what you studied relate to your, what um, actually did, you know, what it's you do? I don't know, I don't have a very succinct answer maybe to that. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know, I did this master's in film production, it was very practical, and I ended up specialising in cinematography, and I really wanted to be a DOP then when I came out, and... So, I mean, I could do this stuff, I suppose, just about, like, I could load just about, you have to start as a trainee loader, yeah. you know, if you want to build that up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just found the film industry impossible when I came out. And it was, I mean, it's incredibly sexist and patriarchal, like, just laughably so. Um, so I think, in retrospect, the fact that I had studied English beforehand probably really helped me just get other work and um, it brought me into current affairs and journalism and I was able to shoot and direct current affairs and documentaries and news reports um, so in one way having that mass in film production gave me technical skills but actually probably my reading and writing skills have really helped me career wise mm. um, uh, but like it's the film industry it's very tricky like there's a lot personal relationships to navigate, maybe less so in animation, but certainly in drama and documentary. Um, and again, I kind of think that studying English has probably helped me in a lot of ways with that. Like, I don't know, those kind of degrees, I mean, they're, they're kind of disgraceful in a way to spend four years, you know, reading Jane Austen. But they do, <laughs> but they do actually teach you to sort of communicate in a vaguely credible way yeah. and that's it's, there's so much bullshit in this industry it's all about that like it's all about seeming plausible so <laughs> that, I, I, what a great I, endorsement for an English degree yeah uh, <laughs> no I just I'm well no you think it's a shit endorsement or a great one no a great one I'd like, I like the way you put yeah it. but who can afford that yeah, anymore I like I think times were a bit different when I was studying English you didn't yeah. have to pay for your college degree but yeah. uh, I don't know I think the the financial issues in the film industry are, as I was saying this before, and they're, they're the big elephant in the room. Like, you know, who is making a decent living most of the time from the film industry alone? Mm. Almost nobody. Um, like, my film took me five years to make. Obviously, I wasn't living off making that film. Um, so I think that's really problematic and not discussed enough. Yeah, and it's something I think we should discuss. Um, might, we'll come back to it in one second, Pierce. Mm. Maybe, is there anything you want to... You can say, tell us about um, just the relationship between how you trained and what y your education and... I did a master's in screenwriting in Dunleary 
Um, but I think kind of my childhood really prepared me more for the <laughs> film industry than the masters <laughs> did. Really to be honest, you know, I kind of grew up in a place where there wasn't there wasn't much to do, and you're kind of surrounded by madness, um, which is a perfect petri dish for becoming a writer. You know, um, so it was Tremor, if you know Tremor, like a typical seaside town, uh, and by typical I mean a kind of cultivated oddness to a, like a, a high art form. Um, it's like a, a tourist town. There's, you know, the winter and summer season, but the winter season is 42 weeks long, <laughs> you know? So there's not much to do, really, you know? And this is, like, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, you would be in the house for the majority of the, of the year, almost. And I didn't have any brothers or sisters. And my mum kind of treated me like a bit of a golden child, and I kind of totally abused that. Um, so I just treated the house like a blank canvas, and so any wall, I would be drawing on it, I'd be painting on it, I'd be writing on it, making stories, and she'd let me. And then when the wall was full, she'd paint over it, and then I'd start again. And that's kind of what I've been doing for the rest of my life, really. <laughs> Do you know? So it kind of, it, it, in a way, it sort of takes away the fear of the blank screen or the blank page from an early age, you know? But... Uh, yeah, I mean, the masses in screenwriting, you know, it was a year to watch movies, do you know? And like Sinead said as well, like back then you could get a grant, you know, that would pay for it and also pay for a bit of accommodation and, and just, you know, a few pints. Um, and also you got final draft software. I remember I tried, to, I'd written one script, a feature script. Basically all my mates went off to Australia for a year and I kind of holed myself up in the, in the box room in the house and wrote this script in Word completely wrong formatting it's probably about 300 pages long um <laughs> but at least i got to the end and like once you get to the end you know it's it's it kind of takes away again the fear of how do you fill you know 100 pages of stuff of, of a story you know um so yeah so the, the masters was again being surrounded by people who are also interested in the subject is great um, the competition probably is good as competition well. is good too um I think, you know, there's definitely, you know, strength in numbers. Um, so that's why I always, you know, if I'm talking to students, I always say, yeah, come to Galway, meet people who are interested in, in you know, in film, in all different areas, and kind of band together, you know, because it just takes away so much of the anxiety that certainly I had, you know, coming into, into the boat club for the first time, you know, and everybody seems to know everyone else. And I'm like, geez, where do I fit in here? You know, everyone's looking as well. And everybody's looking. Yeah, who's that? Who's that dashing young man who's just come in? Um, (laughs) So yeah, so that was, you know, and then just getting a first short under my under my belt. um, Basically, I I made a mind. Ronan uh, Burke, he was doing the film production course in DIT, the masters there, and at the end of the year they would do a graduate film. And so it was like a script competition. And he didn't have a script. He asked if I had a script. Because, um, again, I'd kind of written so in college as well. I kind of wrote play and put it on and that kind of stuff. And I had one in a drawer. So I gave it to him and uh, stuck his name onto it as well. And it got picked. And it got made. And uh, that was... Uh, it was played Galway 2002. So that's a long time ago. So that's 16 years ago. Um, and from 2002 to getting the first feature made was 10 years. And, and um, just on that, I mean, yeah. we talked about just the idea of everyone's entry into the film and media industry being kind of idiosyncratic. And, but there is also this kind of idea that there is a prescribed route, particularly maybe for a writer, where you 
you get the funding for the yeah. for the short, and then you graduate to the feature. Well, that's the way it was, and and is still a little, but it's definitely changed. Like I feel like a real dinosaur, kind of talking about this, because you know when I, again when I tell people, oh, you know, the first film was shot on sixteen millimeter film, you know, held together by tape, and uh, you know, you you the route was you would do your independent short or your student short, and then you try and get a film base short. Um, and if you got that, then maybe you might try and go for TG Cahar because they also have money for shorts. And then if that went well, then you might go to the film board. You know, you're graduating up to like you know shortcuts or signatures. And then if that went well, um, like some kind of Gandalf-like figure would emerge from the shadows and sort of point you towards a door that you hadn't seen. And there you could discuss possibly, you know, doing a feature film. Um, that was kind of the prescribed route at the time. But then, you know, it's changed now. You know, you have somebody, you know, like Jared Barrett, let's say, for example. You know, whatever you, you know, if you like his films or don't like his films. I mean, the guy basically jumped all of those kind of prescribed doors that you had to go through and just took out the money from a credit union and made a film, you know, and uh, fair deuce to him, you know. Uh, so th- you're right, there are different ways of doing it, but like 10 years to make... You know, we made four shorts or something like that over 10 years. Be, and it, that just seems like an enormous... There's pockets of time there where nothing is being made. And I think now, you know, with the technology, obviously people can be out there, you know, making stuff and making mistakes. That's the other thing. If you're just doing it through the funding route, there's a lot of pressure on you to, you know, not feck it up, basically. Um, and you're having to make your mistakes in public because it will be shown. Um, as opposed to, you know, if you're just making stuff with your mates or, you know, you got, you know, on your phone, um, nobody needs to see how you became a genius. You know, you can just, again, if you make mistakes, you will learn from them and you don't need to show those mistakes. And, and, but the temptation there to put everything up online, for example, and, and really, again, I tell students, just hold that back. Do not, just put your really good stuff up online. But like I said, nobody needs to know how you developed, how you got to that point, you know. And, and again, I think we can come back to that idea of just that idea of a stretch of time in 10 years and what are you doing and how do you sustain yourself. But I, I just want to maybe come over to, to, to John and Cathy and think about how does that relate, you know, that kind of, the idea that, say, say if, you're, if you're a writer or a director, that there's this kind of clearly marked signposts uh, for your career. How does that work, relate to someone working in, in screen craft, like, sort of like editing or, or in the art department? Um, and John, I mean, how, you know, what, what does the career of an editor look like? Maybe is the question. I think it's slightly different from um, like a lot of the, a lot of uh, a writer, a producer, or director's time is taken up with uh, trying to make something happen. I'd say ninety percent of the time is <laughs> taken up with that, rather than actually making it. Whereas I think when you're working in uh, the, the crafts, mm. you have a much better. Your most of your time is spent making stuff. <laughs> the ten percent is trying to get the job you want to get rather than um, just working. Now, what happens is that you do can find work that you don't might necessarily be that happy to be doing it, but it's work and you know, you're happy to have it. Um, so I think it is slightly different. I, I do think there is um, some uh, correlation to what Pierce is saying, that you do kind of... You don't, you don't start... Like as an editor, you don't start off doing feature films or you don't start off doing one hour documentaries for RTE you start off by doing short you know shorts that may not get seen anywhere you start off by doing um, 
you know, uh, community-based films that are for, you know, uh, like ads for, you know, um, the local tile shop or whatever it is. And you get to kind of make mistakes and get better. You don't really know that you're getting better, but you kind of do. And I, I think um, that that is a look that is a luxury that maybe uh, people in the crafts can kind of get away with that in a way that maybe kind of writers and directors can't. They get judged a lot more harshly, a lot more quickly. Um, like if I look back at the stuff I cut 15 or 16 years ago, uh, you know, it's terrible, but it doesn't really matter because it was grand at the time and no one's watching it 15 years later, you know, so, um, yeah. And, but one of the things I, I'm wondering is, you know, so now, say you're, you move between, you know, cutting stuff for TV, for, 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 um, for features, but also, you know, we're doing stuff on shorts. So, uh, presumably you're, you're working in quite different environments in some ways. Like you might be working, I'm presuming, with, with maybe you know, early career directors and then working in, with people who are much more experienced. Does that change your role? Do you have to relate to people differently? Uh, yes, it does. And I think Ireland is actually quite good in this regard. Um, I was working with a guy in New York a few years ago and he cut Dog the Bounty Hunter, that show, and he'd spent 10 years doing it. He'd, uh, he'd amassed... He was about 10 or 11 years older than me and he'd amassed... He was saying to me something like, oh, I've, I've done like 10 hours of broadcast television in Ireland. And I was 29 at the time. And I was kind of like, I've done like about 200 hours. <laughs> <laughs> like I did uh, 42 episodes of Bug Stop for TG Gar in like two weeks. <laughs> so like, uh, I, I think you can get very, in the UK and the US in particular, you can get very um, trapped in a kind of ghetto of reality or you do one thing and that's all you do. Ireland is so small that there isn't actually like room for you to kind of get trapped in a, you know, I mean, you can to a certain degree, but there's always, um, you can dip into lots of different things. So I would have done like, you know, music videos, dramas, docs, shorts, and you, you do meet different people who want different things as you kind of go along. Um, And I I guess you just kind of have to bring whatever little bit of experience you can to that. But you're also learning from them in the same way that, that, Uh, you'd like to think you're giving them something too. Uh, yeah. yeah. And would it be similar, Cathy, in the in the art department? You're moving between different contexts as well. I mean, you're working on Vikings, which is obviously yeah. you know, something a very big production. But, yeah. And then God. Yeah. When I moved into that, I'd only ever been on kind of well, like when I say low budget films, it's still they've quite a lot of money in you know in the context of maybe films shot in the West as well. But it took me a couple of months to adjust to how big that machine was. To be, to be honest, you know. But I suppose. Generally, and I like Sinead alluded to it, when you leave college, you're prepared in one way, but you're still starting an apprenticeship, really. You're starting from scratch. So, uh, yeah, I would have spent many years as a trainee, especially in jobs here in Galway, you know. So you're starting at the bottom and learning how to do stuff with people. Um, And, like, as I went on here, depending on the kind of jobs that we got between features and TV shows, kid shows, Irish language things... You try to move yourself up when you get a bit more experience. And the way it is in the West here, there's a, like, a lot of leeway depending on what would happen and the availability of people that you can move up into maybe assistant roles or, or be the head of something, you know. So I would have been able to kind of move across uh, different roles sometimes within the de- design context in Galway. And then I, I wanted to get more experience and proper training. Let, well, not if it's proper training, but work with more established design people I suppose and I moved to Dublin 
and then nobody would have known me there. So you're, my traineeship kind of continued again there and I was knocked down a little bit just so I could build myself up again. So that can be tricky. And I suppose then with everything going bust a couple of years after I moved out of college, that was tough. So you'd have months where you wouldn't be doing anything and you're just cold calling and emailing and which, yeah, sometimes it's easy to do and sometimes isn't. But if you've nothing to lose, you can email anyone and ask them for anything, do you know, that kind of way. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I would have luckily got myself in with a designer in Dublin that I worked with kind of continuously for three years. And then people get to know you and then you realise it's a small pool maybe within the design industry in Dublin. And it's a lot of luck as well. It's a lot of who calls you when you're free just who calls you when you've just finished that other thing and you know who gets pregnant or who uh, gets <laughs> married or you know like and then you just fall into a situation even me being on Vikings now is because the set decorator was working on the feature with me the, like I was working under her like the year before and so she lost a person in her department and gave me a call and I was free and that's how that started so I feel like art department wise and set deck a lot of it is who you call at the right time, who you know, and keeping it nice. <laughs> yeah, but you're somebody she wanted around. She's like, that's, yeah. that's who I yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. she said to me, because I, she said to me, and, you know, I find there's an awful lot of characters anyway in, in the film industry, but, like, uh, she said specifically she had picked up on the fact that I was quite cool in a high-pressure situation, which would, like, particular film job would have been a high-intensity job, and she just said, I'll give her a shot. Here I am two years later kind of thing, still working with her, so yeah. it's good, you know. But, yeah, luck is a big thing. And, I mean, it's something I always say to students is, you know, particularly in a place like Ireland, you are always doing a job interview every time mm. you interact with someone, you know, yeah. because everybody's just looking and, do I want to work with this person? And trying to be memorable as well. It's tricky, it's, you know, because there's lots of people who are happy to snooze and talk and send emails and keep in touch with people a lot more than you might need to if <laughs> you don't really know them that well. <laughs> <laughs> we might come back to that point as well, yeah. <laughs> um, is it a bit different in animation in some way, Nikki? Well, I think it's it, depending on the on the studio or the individual because I think to Sinead's Ch point made about like making your living from making feature films is really difficult. Mm. Even... Like our most successful feature film studio is Cartoon Saloon, three Oscar nominations in a row, and they have they balloon for those projects, and they work with uh, Paul Young's saying is Frankenfinance, where they have to go and get some money from France or from Belgium or from Canada, and divvy up the work. Oh, sorry, thank God that was empty. <laughs> um, divvy up that work the way dependent on tax breaks and all that. But Cartoon Saloon keep the doors open with their work for. Um, Netflix with Puff and Rock, which is an adorable Irish show, but that's a profitable, that's a profitable show, and it keeps the keeps the lights on. And now they're doing Lighthouse is a new company, <clears throat> which is working with I forget the name of the Canadian company, but they've opened it together. And in Brownbag, we have shorts that we do all the time that are pure passion projects. They are they are not what people are paid to work on. This is like I think this is really exciting. Are you guys up for this? Because we're making these cute little naughty bastards running around the place and they're paying our bills but we want to let our hair down with something exciting um, and like the animation industry is a great place for people to make a living now and for a lot of people who work in animation they're happy with that, that's, that's all great, I'm making kids TV my kids love it, their kids are you know, for a short while and then they get too old and it's not cool anymore <laughs> but you know for a while they like Doc McStuffins or Octonauts or Bing or whatever um, 
but then for some of the rest of us like I've got a feature thing I want to get going but it is like my nine to six is making Bing and making the development projects that I know are profitable and this other thing is like I just really want to make it but I can't rely on it to be my bread and butter it won't be but I just want to make it do you know what I mean mm. and yet and like you with your English you're like this is where I can pay my bills and I can make my money and your feature was like I just have to make this it's not going to pay my bills I just have to make it mm. and and finding that balance is tough because sometimes you have to pay your bills doing something that isn't really using your brain to the highest of its capacity but if it's paying your bills who gives a shit if, if because if you want to make something you're going to make it mm. and I think it's interesting that guys have all alluded to this problem of how much harder it is for younger people than it was for any of us I think not to age any of us but <laughs> um, like people in their early 20s my sister for example was expected to work as an intern for free for three to four years Jeez. do you know what I mean like in the in the magazine industry which is a gross industry by the sounds mm-hmm. of things um, but she's an intelligent young person who has the the lucky background that we have of parents who are like we can invest in you and we can support you but it means only people like Kate are in those internships, privileged young people. Yeah, mm. and it's a real vicious circle then because the only stories that ever emerge then in a drama or a documentary landscape anyway reflect that level of privilege. Yeah, yeah. so you find that in, the, in that industry too, that it's like, oh, we're just getting the kids who can afford to be here. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I actually I did find it quite hard to break news. Like I had to... Yeah. Um, I made my own documentary and that got me into a master's and then when I finished I worked yeah I was was always doing side jobs during this whole film I was always doing side jobs I don't know I don't know what the smoother trajectory is but I think that's just such a problem that the only people who get to do jobs that are fulfilling are essentially quite privileged people and that worldview then that's that's um, exploited is really damaging you know you if you want to know why Trump gets elected, it's to do with those kinds of strategies. And we were talking, I mean, we were talking, joking before we started the panel, that this panel, you know, we could just talk about mortgages. But, <laughs> but it's very important because, like, for example, a colleague of mine has done a study on the, on the creative industries in Galway, and one of the things he's found is that it drops off a cliff, age 25, everyone disappears. I and the, the, like the participants, people, so people working in the arts in Galway up to the age of 25, 25 it's and then it drops off a cliff and it comes back again in their 50s, because that whole time when people are having children, trying to get mortgages, they can't do it, and if they can do it, they can't do it in Galway. Um, so, you know, in a sense, yeah, you can get your first project made maybe when you're, you're living at home, and you're, but, but how do you make your second project? How do you make it sustainable? How do you actually create a career for yourself? And how do you also how do you in a sense mind yourself is something I mean mm. I, it struck me I was watching your, your film last night and firstly you shot over five years and but also I just, I just thought it must have been a, a, I mean there's moments in it where it seems you were potentially in physical danger but you also it must have been quite emotionally um, you know you must have gone through a, 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 a lot of emotional uh, mm. journeys in that time I, I want it's a question I kind of want to ask everyone and like that idea about kind of self-care as it were how do you mm. mind yourself mm. that's interesting I've, I've never considered that as a concept but yeah you're right I think so, I just 
at least I, I've always been doing journalism and that's that's providing me with work but I I know so many people my partner works in the film industry and it's so challenging on a psychological basis to be continually looking for work and finding ways to stimulate yourself and not to take personally the, the the level of kind of uninterest that you meet so often um yeah, for, for that film, I did think I was losing my mind at points just because it was so hard to finance. And then, obviously, the story itself was quite dark and I had a really small baby. Though, I have to say, I think in that instance, um, I think I was so mental sometimes that the participants really liked me. <laughs> they, they kind of trusted me a bit more because um, they, they're quite volatile people, I suppose. So I think they found a kindred spirit, maybe. So maybe in that case, sure. it was an advantage to feel quite vulnerable at times. I don't think they ever felt anyone was that I was talking down to them in any way. And I think that had been their experience before with journalists. Sure. I mean, Pierce, mm. I, I've seen up close you disappear into your bedroom for two months and emerge <laughs> with this yeah. thing of beauty. At the end of it, and then it go into a. It was a script. That's not what you called it at the time. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah. <laughs> I didn't work that sentence through beforehand. No. Um, and then, no. uh, but then it go into essentially sort of hell. Yeah, look, you know, when you mentioned about the cliff at age twenty-five. Um, I always had a joke about that. I said the Iftas, they should have a, you know, like at the Oscars, they have those we lost this year. <laughs> <laughs> but they should have that at the Iftas. But actually, it's just pic pictures of people kind of in jobs now where they're being paid on a regular basis and looking content. And, you know, that's... Really that's <laughs> but no, listen, it's in, in like mental health and, and being self-employed. Um, it's really, really tricky. And nobody... You know, people rarely kind of talk about it because I suppose we all want to give off the veneer of yeah, you success know success and, and all that. <laughs> kind of. Nobody wants to be vulnerable, but um, shit, you, you know, when things go bad, they go really bad, and then you know, there's no kind of job there to sort of help pay the bills. Like you know, I went through. You know, there was like a year and a half where, you know, my mum was dying. I was looking after her with dad. Um, I had a relationship breaking down at the same time. I had standby, was kind of going in a direction I, w I wasn't terribly pleased with. Um, and you're just kind of dealing with all of this and, and you're trying to write at the same time, you know, and write jokes sometimes, <laughs> uh, which can be a help, you know. It kind of mean, means you ha kind of have to step outside of yourself. But... Um, you know, the the money, there was no money coming in. Like, I remember going down to the, the Dole office with a, a NIFTA in a bag, um, to, you know, to talk to my Dole officer to try and extend my job seeker's allowance. Do you know? <laughs> Getting out the IFTA and going, look, I, I'm, I'm, I, I can do this. Do you know? This? And, you know, it actually worked. So there's a tip for you. Bring a NIFTA <laughs> to the Dole office with you, you know? Um, so, yeah, you just got to, you know, you, you just got to... <sighs> you got to sometimes just see the absurdity of it all. Sometimes it gets so bad that you just kind of... You just kind of got to look at it and, and just go, okay, this is ridiculous. Do you know? If you can do that, you know, it, it really helps. Um, and I think I got that from my mum, I would say, my granny as well. Like, again, my mum was sick and we brought her back from the hospital and she had, like, cancer and brain tumours and all this kind of stuff. And the neighbours had heard and somebody had dropped in a... A mass card, 
And she saw it and she picked it up and she looked and I went, geez, you know, haven't they ever heard of a get well soon card? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know she, so, uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing, you know? Um, but that's, it's easier said than done, sure. do you know, when you're in the middle of it, you know? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it just struck me when you were talking there, Cathy, and you're tell, it's a positive story in a sense. You're talking about when things worked out, but mm. you're also very aware of, how easily things mightn't have worked out. And Absolutely. it's a difficult way to live, to be aware of that kind of precarity. I, I yeah, I mean, uh, even just, uh, I'm trying to think, like, yeah, between jobs, I mean, it's like selective memory now. When you're <laughs> <laughs> think of all the, like, you know, six-month blocks between jobs, sometimes, you know, when you were younger, that, yeah, it didn't work out. But I don't know, it's like you'd have days where you just kind of bring yourself to email your CV to somebody or try to meet up with somebody or even just orchestrate a coffee with somebody you worked with three years ago or something. And then there are other days where you really do feel like you could manage that yeah. <laughs> and something usually comes of that. I don't know. It's getting better now, obviously. I a bit of a better establishment, obviously, and but it's tricky starting out. Sure. It is, like, yeah. Hmm. Uh, don't worry, we're going to build this up again before. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight we're going to come back, the lights will be off, the magic will be in the air again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we're probably all like equally obsessed with what we do as well. Yeah. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And uh, if you catch us chatting, you know, it's like obviously all, all of my best friends uh, like are people from that course that I did. Yeah. And we just get together and uh, thrive off giving out about <laughs> what we do. <laughs> the stress being on the word thrive. Yeah. Uh, like we just obsessed about it really and love it really as much as we give out. I, I have a question. Uh, well, actually, no, there's one other thing before we build it up again is, is uh, I mean, you sort of alluded to the one thing, the sexism of the industry, obviously, is something that we've all become more aware of. And I think it was one of the things that was talked about in the previous panel was about the idea of respect and that one of the things that people should be trained in before they come into the industry is just basic respect and basic, actually, how to deal with people. You mentioned, you know, your English degree. And I just wonder, does, I mean, does anyone have anything to say on, on how it is? Has it changed? Is it better, worse? There's this weird attitude, I think, that is... <clears throat> In Brown Bag, for example, it, it, the studio is rightly proud that of the supervising directors, there's about seven of us. Um, two of them are women and well-qualified women who have earned their spots, not because they are women, but because they're great storytellers. Um, one of the biggest uh, IP projects of Brown Bags is Brona's creation. She made it up, Brona O'Hanlon's show, Sadie Sparks, and it's going to be like in 100 countries next year. She's been put through the ringer on it now. But I do think there's this sort of weird... Thing, and I'm sure it's the same in live action there's sort of a disproportionate idea that the director is the genius that everybody needs to bow down in front of and it's okay for them to shout and abuse the 24 year olds who are entering the industry and it's like well he's a genius and he's under a lot of pressure and it's like fuck you they're professionals too just because you're some 60 year old wanker doesn't make you <laughs> the right no, I, I really agree with you I think and I think there's a kind of gender link there as well like a, Certainly when I started out, and I've said this before, like if women were allowed to be facilitators, have like kind of mum-like roles, yeah. or they could be hot, they could be like a young actress, yeah. that was it. And yeah. so you definitely couldn't be a creative equal. Mm -hmm. And then the problem with that was that if you're working with crew, if you're working with cameramen or editors, like it, it's like they don't hear you. And I still find it actually yeah. when I'm talking, like it's actually it's kind of age-related when you're talking about a six-year-old man. Like, yeah. 
I'm nervous these days working with cameramen over a certain age because their attitude to you, you just know is going to be different. Whereas yeah. younger cameramen and editors are just much easier to work with. Yeah. They just, there's no, it doesn't even occur to them. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know if it's occurring consciously to older technical crew, but it takes so long. You have to keep saying the same thing over and over again. And uh, it's, it's really comical. I could, yeah. you know, I'd love to play Rushes back. <laughs> it's <laughs> weird as well, though, when I... Because the animation industry was actually very skewed towards uh, boys and men studying it. In our class of 20 that I was in, there were three girls... Um, None of whom finished, actually. One of them is a makeup artist in Vikings now, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. Oh. <laughs> um, but, um, but now the, the classes are 50-50, even more women, actually. And the younger artists in the studio, you can see the shift in terms of the new hires, of the new waves coming in, that it is more evenly spread. And it feels like the dynamic is a little more balanced, just because it's a yeah. more diverse I think things are definitely changing, but I yeah. think... But the way they were initially was just so mad. And there yeah, was yeah. Abs- an absolute acceptance that this is this male genius and that's, the, that's his role and the women would facilitate that. Yeah. Um, it's totally grim. Now we build Are you going to build Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I want to leave a bit of time as well just to, to throw it open to the audience. So I might just finish by asking you, I guess I really want to ask you about expertise and and what you know because all of you have been working in your various areas for for a period of time and uh you know the the funny thing about expertise is is it's something that kind of creeps up on us i think you know that suddenly you just realize actually i'm i'm a bit more i'm actually competent at this uh so i'm wondering i guess you know is there a moment when you felt, am I, I'm actually all right at this? But also, what you think, you know, what's the thing, if you were to say to someone coming into your, your area, um, you know, this is the thing, you know, this is the thing that, you know, I got, and then that made, I got, I got what I was doing. You know, is there, is there something that, you know, as you say, you're talking about, you say, John, the difference between what you cut 15 years ago and what you cut now, what, what is the thing that you see, what has changed, what have you learned in that time in the industry? How, um, well, in that particular case, I'd say it's, um, if I look back at stuff that I cut 15 or 16 years ago, it feels like I, I'm trying to give someone what they want rather than trying to be a, a, like a contributing factor to it being good, if that makes sense. So um, you're kind of there as uh, someone to get the job done rather than um, to offer something yourself. Um, in terms of like there being a moment... Um, I'd say, and it kind of touches on the, the mental health thing a little bit, like when I was in my 20s, I just like, worked all the time. And I took a kind of perverse pride in working for 24 hours straight. And I kind of always felt like this was kind of the way to get good. And uh, a friend of mine from uh, primary school, his mother died, and I didn't go to the funeral because I was uh, a week away from picture lock on Brides of Franck. And I remember thinking to myself, what am I doing? Like, that's crazy. Like, I should be able to just go to, like, a personal... I should be able to take a personal day just because this job is only three weeks long. I should still be able to do that. And I think... So maybe five or six years ago, I kind of just went... um, You know, people are hiring me because I'm me, not because I'm available. 
Um, and that made, a, that made a big kind of change in terms of the value that I could give people, but also the value that I could put on kind of um, my, you know, the value that I put on myself and uh, having some, class, like you, you don't have a work-life balance, but you, it, it gave it some kind of, um, uh, I put importance in the right place, let's say. Um, and in terms of what I would kind of say to, uh, like, people kind of coming into it, I think a lot of times people would kind of say, like, oh, you know, someone might email me saying, like, I'm looking to try and get in, get some work, and you kind of help me out? And they, a lot of it is kind of, a lot of the email would be dedicated to, like, I've just done this short, and, you know, uh, I, I'm able to use this software and this software, and it kind of, none of it really, like if you're going to hire someone as an assistant or someone starting out, you kind of expect them to have a certain... They expect to be able to do the job. What you actually want is someone who's sound, who's not going to, like, cause you any grief. Um, and that if they're going to be in the back of the room doing something, that they just get it done. And uh, that they're there when you need them. And that's not necessarily that you ask them a question and they give you the right answer. It's that they offer something to you when you, you don't know that you need it and they're there for it. Uh, so actually being sound is the primary thing if someone's going to come in and just be kind of an, an ass the whole time <laughs> it's not worth it yeah. Um, yeah. I bet you were not only cool under pressure but you were sound that's why you got yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I mean thanks John Cathy I mean w w you, I guess picking up on that what you know what are the things you've learned that you think this is uh, yeah. this is key it's kind of like yeah a bit of an attitude thing but um I suppose, like, I would carefully say there's a certain element of fake it till you make it that, <laughs> should, <laughs> that should be employed. Uh, <laughs> because definitely when I was maybe for the first five years out of college, I was overly honest about what I wasn't able to do when I was in interviews. And I wouldn't have had that many interviews. A lot of it is word of mouth or you just go on to a person with another, to another job. But I've definitely not got a job because somebody's asked me, are you able to do this? And I've gone... Not really, and uh, <laughs> and I just walked out of there going, and I think a couple of weeks later I knew who got the job, and then I was like, oh, God damn it, like I just know I'm better than that person, and why didn't I just go yes in there and then go YouTube it afterwards, mm. or whatever, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I, I find it with girls, maybe I can just kind of generalize a bit, but I find women will tell you honestly what they're able to do, but they're probably putting themselves, they're being hard on themselves, where lads will probably go in and go, yes. <laughs> I can do that, uh, or I've done a bit of that. You know, they'll just put a spin on it that's different. And uh, I think, yeah, I just, I've started employing a bit more of that attitude in the last couple of years. Great, thanks. Because <laughs> yeah. I find I, you can learn it quickly, whatever it is. So jump in. And yeah, yeah, jump in. And actually, still, don't be afraid to ask questions once you're in there. Yeah. Don't just be quiet and say, you're thinking, oh, they think I know how to do that thing. You know, you're probably definitely able to do most of it. And then the bit you're not sure of, just ask and it'll be fine. Sure. Pierce, uh, looking at those scripts in your bedroom drawer uh -huh. 20 years ago, and what, and now, I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> the things of beauty well, you enough, I brought them with me. <laughs> uh, you know, the Get stuff that you, uh, you turned out on the way to yeah. being a genius. What, uh, what, what's the kind of things that you've, I guess, learned through, through writing? Through uh, I, like, again, a couple of things, bits of advice I always say is, you know, run your own race. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Um, there isn't a finite amount of success in the world. Do you know what I mean? Um, so if somebody else, you know, has got a job, you know, first news to them, you know, just, you know, keep at it. Don't be kind of going, why didn't I get that job? 
Do you know? Um, thinking that there's only a small amount of success, and now they've gotten it. Um, I like similar to what what John was saying about the work life balance. Like again, I, I you know when we were uh, you know in that place in that house um, for several months, like I was kind of working in the airport, um, working a job at the tourist information desk there. Um, and then I'd come home, and I would then write until about four or five in the morning, and then sleep for a few hours, and go and work in the airport again. Like I did that for, I remember doing that for several months on a, on a, another project. Um, and that was, you know, what drove me then was kind of thinking, you know, if I'm there writing at three or four in the morning, I bet you Neil or Jim aren't doing this. <laughs> if I can just work harder than Neil and Jim, you know, eventually something's got to bend here, you know, and something's got to got to break. But you know, with writing, there's no royal road to it. You know, it is kind of the hard yards. Um, you do get better with everything that you write. Um, you know, the thing that kind of you were talking about. When did you realize, like, you know, you you kind of had progressed with your craft? Mm. Literally, it's when something plays in front of an audience for, for a writer. You know what I mean? You have a sense of, okay, I can build a story, and I think this works. But really, it's only until you get that reaction. And I remember even for the short film, like, the, like that first short film, it's still the thing I'm most proud of because it did the thing that I want from a film experience, which is, you know, my idea is kind of there. I can see it, but also everybody involved also brought it up to another level which I couldn't have kind of imagined you know as actors and cinematography directing everything music everything just created this thing that was you know when we put in front of an audience you know they were laughing but sometimes they were laughing in places I didn't expect them to laugh or they didn't laugh in places that you know that I thought you know, would bring the house down um but overall, the, you know, the experience was just so amazing. You know, you're kind of you're floating afterwards, and that's what kind of keeps you going. I think a lot of the time, just even getting a, a hint of that, and that's what gets you through kind of so those periods where, you know, that grind. And also being a writer as well in Ireland, it's a very, it's a very vulnerable job, because you know, uh, it's very producer led. The industry here, well, I suppose the industry in general is very producer-led, but particularly in Ireland. Um, and, you know, any writer's contract that you sign, it's basically designed, we're going to take your material from you, and you know what, we're going to decide what happens next. And we're not, you know, if you're not careful, you can sign something that you think is legit, and actually what you're signing is, you know, they can just go off and get another writer if they feel like it. This is something that you've been working on for ages, you know? Um, so, like, I've kind of been talking to a couple of other writer friends about that, and we were kind of saying maybe the Writers Guild needs to come up with a more kind of writer-orientated contract rather than ones that we have at the moment, which seem to be more kind of developed by producers. And to get just, uh, you know, an equilibrium, just get a fairness to it, you know? That's all, you know, that you kind of want from an experience. But, um, yeah, you just you just got to be so careful out there, you know? Um I remember after Standby, after like the first feature, and I had a little bit of money for the first time, and a production company came to me in, in Dublin. Um, I won't say who they are, but they said, oh, yeah, we got this co-production lined up. we got this book that we need to be adapted. And it's co-production with a company in England, and we need to do, would you do a treatment of the book? And I remember being at a meeting with the, you know, these other 
co-producers and stuff and the joke that was made was kind of like well you know here we like to um, get the writer to do the heavy lifting at the start for free and everybody laughed around the table and you know I was kind of you know again I just you know wanted to work you know what I mean um, and I kind of just went oh, well, you know okay I guess do you know stupidly mm. stupidly and you know spent two months basically adapting a book writing out a treatment give it into them, and then they go, oh, well, yeah, we just found out that, you know, production company in England, they actually didn't have the rights to the book. Oh, you know. But we have this other project maybe you'd like to work on. And you're like, no, fuck you. <laughs> Do you know? Um, but you've just spent two months of my life, and I've just, in for nothing, no money. Um, so these are all the kind of uh, stuff that is out there. And I always kind of say to any writer in particular, if you have a solicitor in your family or you know somebody who knows somebody who's a solicitor, get them on your side and look at those contracts before you sign anything because, um, you know, you need people in your corner and often that's, you don't have that certainly starting off. Sure. You know. Thanks. Sinead, what have you learned? What would you advise? Um, no, I would really agree, actually, about legal representation. Um, the industry is very producer-led, as I kept complaining to producers last night <laughs> and writers are very vulnerable um, and I really love to write but I the process that I see writers going through it's just it's kind of agonizing as far as I can see it's really difficult um, but I, I was thinking of you were asking you know was there a point where you felt you, you'd learned something and um, I think I was quite shy I suppose when I was younger and my any kind of confidence I had was very easily crushed and I think one good move I made was to move away from trying to make and do things that would work in the film industry and I just went into current affairs which is a lot more empirical and I moved to London and it was a lot more egalitarian probably there too and when I came home and started making this documentary um you know, I tried for years to be that kind of performative director or journalist, like, asking these hard questions, which isn't really my character. Um, and with this, I, I was just, um, I suppose, rambling, maybe, or something. And, uh, you know, there were cameramen who were working with me just going, you're missing the story. Like, they're really critiquing me the whole way through. And there was a point where I started working with an editor, Endo Dowd, you know, and he was... He was so brilliant. He went through all the rushes, and he was like, "This is great stuff. You know, this this will this will be the making of this film." And um, so I suppose that's it's very recent. Like it's only in the last year that I've realised that being softer and being more vulnerable is actually an effective way of working, also, and that you don't have to be this bombastic character, and you don't have to be really impressive all the time. Thanks. So that's something. That's great. Um, Mickey, um, I I don't know. It's so I almost feel like such a taste giving advice. Why did anyone listen to me? But um, I I think the one thing is to just pay attention not only to what it is you're really interested in because I think you'll only truly love your work when you're doing what mm. you really love and not I want I need to make a film that's going to end up at the IFTAs or at, like do you know what I mean and. Uh, even that thing of feeling like this is the kind of director I should be. Yeah. Because that's what we all do. We And it, it's only when you really start paying... Like, I, after I didn't get that job as an animator, I was like, I need to become the best animator. And it's just not my strength. I'm better with design. And I'm better with 
the story end of things. Um, and that's what led me to direction because I was a good art director. I then became a director and then and the animation team, I'm like, I need a good animation director because it's not my strength. Um, when I gave up on going, okay, I'm not going, I, I was 21st, I wasn't in the top 20 animators, that's fine. I don't think I would be where I am now if I had got that job. But paying attention not just to yourself, but also to the situation you're in, because there is stuff to be learned, even in a shit show. Um, like, like, I do not want to be that kind of director. I do not want to work with that kind of producer. Or, sorry, and we should be uplifting. I definitely want to work with that guy. <laughs> and I definitely want to work with him. And I definitely want to work with her. And because that's what happens. As the projects go on, the people you like, hang, you like working with are the ones who hang around. And you, and you all move up the ranks together. And you get to create the kind of world you wish the project you were on just before was. But they're all gone now because you get rid of them <laughs> on the next project. But animation is, is weird like that because it's a bunch of artists kind of creating a completely fake thing, an illusion of life. Um, and it's really hard. It takes a really long time. So why the hell would you bother doing it with people you don't like? But of course, you're going to have to do that for a while when you're young. It just happens. <laughs> but pay attention and, and learn what you want to do, who you want to work with, and who the hell you don't want to be like and who you don't want to work with. I, I think it's great. I think there's obviously some common sort of points coming out here. Uh, and I think they're very important ones. It's about people at the end of the day, you know. And yeah. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's about relationships. I think John's is the best. Be sound. That's yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. To uh, yourself and to other yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good advice. Um, we, I, if, I think we could maybe have a couple of quick questions, if anyone wants to. Yes. Uh, just my name's David Cavanagh, and I work for the Writers Guild. There are practical reasons why we can't offer a standard writer-friendly contract. Uh, what, we, what we can and do do, or rather what I do, is we, we will read any draft contract that you've got and give you telephone, email, uh, person to person advice on the contract. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I read a lot of writers' contracts in Ireland and I know them very well. And that service is there. We prefer you to pay and become a member of the guild, but we give that advice to anybody but they'll give members of it. Thanks very much for that. Mm -hmm. Couple of things there. So uh, yeah, a couple of months ago, I kind of it was I was working on a bank holiday and it was really nice outside, and I was the only one in the building, and I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so basically, editors' rates haven't really gone up in about fifteen years. So um, I was getting more on passion fashion than I was doing like on my eighth feature film. That's ten ten years ago, maybe. Quite possibly, yes, yeah, two thousand five, six, something like that. So yeah, more twelve years. Um, so, uh, and it's this thing, um, 
and it, it affects kind of most editors. Maybe there's five or six editors in the country who have agents and work kind of in London who do dramas, and they would they would be well compensated. But for the people who are below that, you know, lots of top top class editors, and they're still kind of getting paid the same as they were ten or eleven years ago. And it's just a, a, I suppose it's a degree of frustration with um, the value we put on our uh, on the value that's put on our work is purely on a creative basis and that's great for a while but you would like to think that as you're kind of doing more projects that um that they would that they would you'd be compensated accordingly um also it just you know there's times where i've had to kind of turn down work on films and things that i would love to have worked on um and because i had to go do uh, a four-week job on something for a perfectly fine uh, TV half hour, but I needed to pay bills. And you, there's a, the amount of times you're at something like Go a Film Friend, you're like, oh, I could have worked on that, and I could have worked on that. But you don't, because you just need to keep... You have to kind of make sacrifices to work on the ones that you want to work on by, you know, maybe working on a feature for six, seven months a year, and then uh, spending the next five months trying to get as much TV work as you can uh, to make it possible if you do another six months the following year. I think that's a, uh, I, I think they were always probably possibly separate. I, I think the, uh, the fact that everything is digital now, there isn't really that need for assistant editors, and that's kind of another slight problem that we have. Uh, talking to a bunch of editors recently, we, there's a definite mar uh, gap in the market between like people who are 25 to 35 who in the past would have been doing TG Carr half hours um, and what's happening now is and they would have people who would have gone into being assistant editors they don't do that anymore because there's so much kind of corporate work doing like everyone needs video content for their web so people can get work editing but they're not learning how to be brought they're not learning how to do like tell stories they're learning how to sell something so uh, it that is a bit of a That, that line has never been replaced. It's gone elsewhere. Budgets are But all budgets down all over. are reduced. Yeah. It's not just the editing line. You know, everyone's budget, a film, like a whole feature film's budget is much reduced. You know, there was this halcyon period, I think, in the 90s, early noughties, where people could make substantial living. And then I think there's a combination of things. It's the digital age and then, I mean, even the crash in 2008 and... It's just very different now, that whole landscape. I think Screen Ireland has been given a lot of new funding. So maybe that'll change. Maybe that'll add an extra line in the edit. I suspect not. Yeah, but it, it is the whole budget. Like, every department is affected by it. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. There isn't an assistant editor role anymore, and I agree that a lot of people are going to corporate work and they're learning to sell, not tell stories. Mm. But I think there's an overall picture, which is that everyone's budget is much diminished, except perhaps in the animation world. Well, weirdly, for young, <laughs> for young kids, though, because these are big companies that are like, they want to make shows for kids. And there's always new kids who need new, shiny shows. And they're, the budgets are big, and they're great learning ground for, for people. And they need mm. all, all experience levels, really experienced leaders, but lots of juniors who are at the start of their career, so their salaries aren't as high, but there's a ladder now. It's great. I mean, the animation industry is so different from when we were leaving. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of an aberration, though, or yeah. it's, it's funny. Yeah, but the guys, in fairness to the guys who all had all the studios in Ireland, were kind of in and around the same age, and they were struggling at markets, and they got together and was like, if we are a unit, the broadcasters will get to know us as, oh, the Irish guys, they're having a party. Mm. and so They're totally right. <laughs> but that's what they did. They created yeah. a sort of brand. No, but by brand. aberration, yeah. I mean, like, it's yeah. just, it's a it's a one-off compared to other brands in the industry. But exactly, it yeah. reflects very well on them. I mean, they've done brilliantly. No, they have, well. because, it, because Sullivan Bluth was, you know, an American company that came. That's why the college courses started. Yeah. It pissed off after 10 years. And the guys kind of were like, well, we're here. We can do it ourselves, mm. though. And it took ages, but now... Now the graduates are being fought over in animation. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> They're not folding t-shirts like I was. <laughs> I think we should finish on that inspirational uh, <laughs> <laughs> you <gotta> point. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, sorry, I think we will actually have to finish up. I, I, just, I, well, I just want to say one thing before I thank everyone. Uh, one of, I said I had two motivations. The other, the second motivation is uh, I've just begun a project um, basically modelled on one that, that the motion picture... Um, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in, in LA do, which is they've over a period of time they've been doing this oral history project with people working in film craft, and so I've just started a project which is basically the aim of which is to is to do a series of ongoing series of, of long form interviews with people working uh, in film crafts in Ireland to document their experience, which will ultimately be. Uh, is intended to be a repository for, for people doing research in, into Irish film in the future. Uh, so, um, yeah, some of you may be hearing from me again. Uh, and, uh, but in the meantime, I'd just like to, to really thank everybody for on the panel for coming up here and bearing their souls for the last hour. Uh, so thanks, guys. <laughs>